they found that the sperm could take up foreign messenger RNA, which is what these vaccines are, turn it into DNA and produce little um, plasmids containing that DNA. And then at the time of fertilization, all the sperm, not just the one that fertilizes, are releasing these plasmids. And then the uh, fertilized egg takes them up and incorporates them. And then those plasmids become something really permanent in that um, fertilized, in, that, in the, in the uh, fetus that develops out of that fertilized egg. So that child is actually born still carrying um, plasmids take, uh, taken from the sperm that contain the messenger RNA as DNA, circular DNA contained inside those plasmids that can keep on making more DNA and therefore more protein for the rest of that child's life. And even those can be passed on to its uh, offspring. Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I have a very special meeting of the minds for you today. Joining me will be Stephanie Seneff, PhD, senior researcher at MIT, and somebody you're very familiar with. I think we've had two interviews with him, and that is Denny Rancourt, PhD, who is a researcher at the Civil Liberties Association for Ontario. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back, and I'm really excited to be interviewing and having a conversation with Stephanie. I, I'm really happy about that. Absolutely, and I'm actually kind of excited. Denny and I were talking about this kind of format in, in a way to bring people together to have discussions in regard to multiple experts as well as different people involved in the interview and kind of having, as I said, a meeting of the minds. Because I think what's interesting we've all seen from this that there's a lot of very intelligent, very highly credentialed people that have a lot of different opinions on this. I think a lot of us are beginning to realize, not necessarily to include myself in that group, but a lot of people out there are very clearly beginning to recognize that there's lies happening, that there's misinformation, at the very least mistakes, and that's generous. But even within that, a lot of people in that group, experts and different doctors and scientists disagree on certain points. So I thought it would be really interesting to see the difference of opinions as well as the things that we agree on in, in, in general. So let's start off today with something that's obviously very high on people's minds. And this is in general, the, the vaccine discussion that seems to sort of be falling, sort of be, it seems to be falling apart in front of us right now, whether that's just because of Omicron or how they're framing this. It's very clear that what was once being said is not panning out today. So I'll leave it to you two to discuss this in general and, and uh, kick it off, Danny. What do you have? What do you, what's on your mind today? Oh well, I, my my first thing is just to react to what you just said. I, I I think I think what how the establishment is behaving right now is probably more a strategic choice and a political choice than than in relation to what Omicron is or you know how the actual medical circumstances are evolving. I think it's just it's it's all about how they're manipulating us, and uh, they they always like to hit hard and then pull back, hit hard and pull back because that prevents us from developing. Uh, steady resistance methods and, and adapting in a resistive way. So I, I, I think it has more to do with that than, than any mutation or anything like that. That would be my sense of, of the immediate uh, political circumstances right now. I don't know, Stephanie, how, how do you feel about, about this? I feel a little differently, actually. I think Omicron is a, is a blessing. I think I am so happy to see Omicron because it is a brilliant solution. It's basically a natural vaccine. I love the fact that it's super contagious 
And it looks like it's quite mild, sort of like having a cold, maybe a bad cold at worst. Most people, uh, most people don't. And some people get, you know, positive. I have a friend here who got tested positive, never had a single symptom, had to stay, you know, quarantined, but didn't have any symptoms at all. So I think it's wonderful that um, Omicron has chased out all the bad guys, if you will, you know, all the other variants. And also Omicron is quite resistant to the vaccines, which also makes me very happy because I think the vaccines you know, talk about disinformation. The vaccines are neither safe nor effective. And um, and we've been lied to about that. And and I just, I hate the fact that so many people have just accepted what they've heard from the government. Oh yeah, these vaccines are great. They're safe. They're effective. There's no reason why you shouldn't get them. I was very upset last night on the PBS Evening News. They had a segment uh, where they interviewed different mothers about, you know, uh, vaccines for kids. And, and the topic was kind of, why don't we yet have a vaccine for two-year-olds? I was just so angry because I'm furious at the fact that they're injecting these these toxins into five-year-olds already now. That is, inc- I think it's criminal because I think these uh, vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines are extremely toxic. That's everything that I've seen tells me that's the case. And it can be insidious and slow, just like glyphosate, which is something I'm very familiar with. So um, I think yeah. um, Omicron's a good thing. <laughs> that's the way I see it. The- As I understand it, a lot of the cellular and molecular mechanisms that you're very familiar with that are part of your research, um, are there's relationships between how glyphosate affects our metabolism and our organs and our bodies and how these vaccines potentially can affect our bodies as well, right? There there are relationships. So you were able to step right in there and use that knowledge to make uh, comment immediately about the vaccines and this new technology. Isn't that right? I think so. Actually, it's been quite, you know, it's actually been kind of a windfall for me, both the glyphosate. And I want to just say I have this book, Toxic Legacy, um, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. He has it too. So that's great. Uh, I recommend you read this book. I, I My focus was on autism. I've been studying autism for a long time. And I really didn't discover glyphosate until five years into it. Um, but when I did discover glyphosate, I dropped everything else and focused on that. And that was, a, you know, that was almost 10 years ago. So um, I've spent a long time studying glyphosate. I believe that is the active ingredient in Roundup. Roundup is used extensively on our foods. It's all over the food supply. It's in the air. It's in the water. We can't avoid it in this country. Our country uses more than any other country in the world per person. And we are having a very difficult time coping with COVID-19. I think those two are connected. And when you look at all the comorbidities, we know that people who are obese or have diabetes, your heart issues, they have higher risk of bad outcome with COVID. And I think the whole thing is connected to glyphosate. When you have chronic glyphosate exposure, you get all these conditions and you get um, and you get COVID because you, it, it uh, messes up your innate immunity. And I have a whole chapter in my book on glyphosate and the innate immune system. It becomes weak. You can't fight off the virus. And then you, you come in, the, you know, the, the adaptive response kicks in big time and you end up with a really bad uh, result with the lungs filling up with water and all this I, stuff. I, I, have to, I have to jump in here, Stephanie. You may not have seen my, my large uh, research on all-cause mortality in the United States looking at it by state. But what we found it clearly was that more excess mortality compared to the historic trend was directly related to the states that had the highest levels of poverty and obesity mm-hmm. and therefore diabetes and so on. So it exactly correlates with what you're saying. And those same states are in the Mississippi uh, 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 right. area where you have a lot of agriculture and a lot of use of glyphosate. So yes. there's a, a really strong correlation between 
uh, glyphosate use, poverty, obesity, and now we know from my from my work, it's clearly the excess mortality. There, there were over a million deaths in the United States in excess to the historic trend. And they're yes. all concentrated in those areas. In fact, there, there are correlations with uh, poverty that are very strong. And if you if you go away from the states that have poverty and obesity, there are no excess deaths. So the, there was no virulent pathogen in those states, almost as though if you want to start believing that the virus didn't cross uh, jurisdictional borders, you know, just like yes. in Canada, there were there was no excess mortality on a per year basis, if you look at all cause mortality. And so I've been arguing that, well, okay, you can say what you want about Omicron, but there never was a particularly uh, virulent pathogen at all, because everything can be explained in terms of these fragile populations being attacked by the measures that were imposed, combined Mm -hmm. with the fact that a lot of their deaths were mechanistically caused by pneumonia, bacterial Mm -hmm. pneumonia, combined with the fact that the medical establishment was told not not to prescribe antibiotics. So the antibiotic prescription rate dropped dramatically in the COVID crisis period in the United States. All this together gave us the deaths that we found in all-cause mortality. So, but this, but this meshes in perfectly with what you're saying about glyphosate now, which I hadn't realized uh, was that was a connection there. If, if um, I could jump in with a question, I think this is a re- my audience is going to be very, very interested in this topic because I've, we were briefly touching on before we started, Stephanie, that we've been covering the glyphosate and just you know the ubiquitous nature of it around the world, which is unreal. And just to show a couple of things, interestingly enough, we put this out in 2016. Groundbreaking review shows how glyphosate alters DNA toward chronic illness. Exactly what she's discussing. And sure enough, this is Stephanie's uh, research from 2016. And just how when you look around the world, you find that this is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's in most vaccines. It's in everybody's urine after a pee test in in Europe and things like this. It's all over the place in in organic wines in Monsanto, or excuse me, in popular German beers. So my question would be specifically in regard to the vaccines. So we're discussing this around a crossover between COVID-19 and how it could be causing exactly what we're calling that. Right now, Stephanie, is there any evidence that we have glyphosate found inside of the current injections? And on, and that's not even to discuss the ubiquitous nature of it, that it's on the clothes that you're wearing and the air you're breathing. Is it actually <laughs> added as an ingredient that's inside there? And then give me a differentiation between those two. Uh, it's not. It's never intentionally added, but it was in the vaccine. Several of the vaccines tested positive for glyphosate, which I was really shocked by. And that was by two independent studies. Um, and it was typically the vaccines that were live virus vaccines. So like the... Um, MMR in particular had the highest amounts compared to all the other vaccines, which was quite interesting because MMR is connected to autism. So I actually think the glyphosate in the MMR is playing a critical role in the bad response that the child can get to the MMR that can then lead to the development of autistic symptoms. So I think that's all connected together. Um, These vaccines, I haven't tried to figure out whether they would. I, I don't know necessarily that they would because the, the way they're manufactured is really, um, I don't think that there's an obvious reason why they would have glyphosate no. in them. The the messenger RNA vaccines, it's it's wet chemistry. It's in the lab. It's it's re, it's relatively clean. It does not involve viruses or or right exactly. It's, grow them it's or quite anything, interesting right? that way how yeah. it's done. Yeah, but um, uh, Stephanie, now I'm I'm going to pursue this now like a like a dog after a bone, I guess. But uh, because I'm 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 really intrigued now. So 
can you um, see a mechanism whereby because of glyphosate exposure, someone would be more vulnerable to not be able to defend themselves against a bacterial pneumonia? Because that's the main mechanism that we're seeing in, in actually causing the deaths of these, of these uh, populations in the United States. How, how would you make that link? Can you make a link like that? Well, it would be the same because the innate immune system is, is needed for the bacteria as well as for the viruses and also for um, other kinds of infections. And so um, I think it would be easily the case that the glyphosate disrupting the innate immune system would also interfere with the bacterial response. It's, uh, it's quite fascinating what I wrote about in my book, and it, it, it ties to my theory that glyphosate substitutes for glycine during protein synthesis. I think it's very clear this is happening from the evidence presented by Monsanto in their own research studies. And I have a whole chapter in the book that, that gives that evidence, the evidence uh, in the research literature that supports the concept that glyphosate substitutes for glycine by mistake during the assembly of a protein. That is just super, super strange and diabolical effect that but, 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 uniquely but, 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 has what does that mean exactly in terms right. of what are the what are the repercussions of that to a higher level and all the way to the immune system like the, the white blood cells that we need to fight bacterial infections right. for example what what's the connection there right if you well, could, if you could tap that out for us yeah well first of all it's just mitochondrial damage so that's very um it's, it's shown experimentally that glyphosate uh, disrupts an enzyme called succinate dehydrogenase which is crucial in the mitochondria both for the uh, citric acid cycle which metabolizes you know uh, sugar for example and also in the in the uh, electro, uh, electron transport chain that generates the atp both of them need that enzyme and that enzyme has been shown to be suppressed and it fits my model i have this glyphosate susceptibility motif that matches that enzyme. So there's a whole bunch of proteins that I've identified that would be especially susceptible to glyphosate. And one of them is a whole class of proteins are these, um, these are immune proteins produced by uh, the immune cells. Uh, they're quite fascinating because they have something called a collagen like stalk. And collagen is the most common protein in the body. It's all over the joints, the bones, you know, the skin, it's everywhere. It's the glue really that holds us together. It's it's by far the most common protein. So I think twenty five percent of the proteins in our body are collagen molecules, and uh, collagen has this long, long sequence of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is a glycine. That sequence is essential for forming the, this triple helix structure that collagen shapes into. That is essential for it to have its interesting properties in terms of being able to hold water tensile strength, you know, flexibility, all the things that collagen does so well depend on that triple helix that gets messed up if you start substituting glyphosate for those glycines. Now, those collagen-like stalks are also GXY, 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 and they are, they are attached to the end of these proteins, and they are in surfactant proteins, for example, in the lungs. Um, there, there's a pair of surfactant proteins in the lungs that are very good at trapping uh, viruses, for example, and other uh, pathogens. They trap them so that then they can easily be cleared, but they uh, they won't even go out of the cell if they've got too much glyphosate. I feel because I've seen you know mutations in these glycines cause severe disease that they won't even um, exit from the cell, so they're just stuck inside. They can't do anything because they need to be in the surfactants to work. So, so I think that there's a major disruption of that process. Okay, so that, that the the mechanism that you just described. Um, involves the very first immune defense that we have for for something that is transmitted through aerosol particles it, it, when you have to breathe it in. So you're right. really directly speaking to that 
uh, first line of defense, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so you're saying that the long-term low-dose exposure to glyphosate makes us generally, potentially, according to your mechanism, more uh, less able to fight uh, uh, infections through the airways. Exactly. That's, yes. That's what you're saying. And I know there's a very interesting story related to um, e-cigarettes. Um, really, really interesting because e-cigarettes have as their base um, a molecule called glycerol. And glycerol is the major byproduct of the of the um, biofuel industry, the biofuel industry. So when they take um, they take crops, for example, this biofuel industry is growing dramatically, in the last, especially in the last year or two. It's growing dramatically and the U.S. is a major player. Also, Europe, uh, Brazil. And these are all countries that are being hit really hard by by COVID. And so. A little noise out there. Is that OK? <laughs> I, know. I think we're just passing. So you're, yeah, in, so you're in Hawaii. You're in Hawaii, so there's bound to be a lot of wildlife and noise. And <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah, we've got chickens. Um, so the um, the uh, so where was I? So then the glycerol is the base for the cigarettes, and so when you smoke the cigarettes, you're getting the glycerol into your lungs, and the glycerol is, I think, you know, very likely to be contaminated with glyphosate because you're getting what you do with the biofuels is you you have the crop of wheat, you spray it with glyphosate right before the harvest, you harvest it. And then you take the stubble and you throw it on a barge, you take it down to a city, run it through a bioprocessing plant, and out comes biodiesel, bioethanol, uh, you know, biomethane gas, all these different biofuels. Um, I think they're all going to be contaminated with glyphosate. And then you've got the glycerol, which is the byproduct. That's for sure, I think, going to have glyphosate in it. So the e-cigarette problem is a problem in the lungs that the symptoms are pretty well matched to COVID-19. It's pretty much COVID-19 disease as far as the, the, the symptoms that they have. And it's a toxicity in the lungs that um, that they're feeling, uh, I think, because the glyphosate is damaging the lungs. So I'm, I'm not familiar with the condition of, of the people who smoke those types of cigarettes. Uh, what, what is if you could just tell us what is what is what's the problem? What's the epidemiology of this problem? Yeah, well, so the people who smoke e-cigarettes started showing up with this strange lung condition. That's kind of a um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, pneumo pneumonitis. Pneumonitis is what it's called, inflammation of the lungs. And it's a mystery disease. Uh, so they've been studying, trying to figure out what it could be, you know, and, um, well, and kind of running blind. I have an interesting thought here, and my audience would be very unhappy with me if I did not draw this connection, because we've been talking about this since the very beginning in regard to this very weird vaping illness that was circulating in the United States that just so happened to be right around the locations of Fort Detrick and right around the locations of these Mm. rare nursing homes that had this weird outbreak that was exactly like COVID-19, ground glass opacity lungs. They called it the common cold, which didn't make sense. So my question, my question is ultimately, I've always seen something there. I know exactly what it was. People thought maybe there was something in that. Maybe this was covering up what was happening. My question, I guess, is twofold, is whether or not that you feel that's tied to what you're talking about and then whether or not that in and of itself could become what we're talking about. In other words, whether that could be COVID nineteen yes. is the glyphosate toxicity. Well, I wonder that in the myself, smoke, but in other ways too. Like yeah. you wouldn't need the virus to get the symptoms, which is true. You know, wow. you don't. I think. I think you don't need the virus. You just need the glyphosate to get the symptoms. Well, I think that's going to interest Denny quite a bit from his previous. Well, I, I, I don't think you need the vi the virus or a virus, a particular virus for any of this, because yeah. I what I have seen in all cause mortality is something that supposedly spread but stopped the jurisdiction. 
and the deaths are due to what you did in that jurisdiction. I mean, the government and, and the medical establishment response. So I can, I can understand all of all cause mortality uh, resolved by time, resolved by age group and by jurisdiction, just in terms of the incredible stress and conditions that were, people were subjected to. Uh, the isolation, the stress, and so on. These things dramatically affect uh, the immune system and one's health generally. Right. Uh, and that's that's overlooked quite a lot. And I, I, I understand the entire phenomenon in that way. So I keep telling people, but, but you don't need a particularly, you know, you already have all these hundreds of viruses and bacteria that are acting all the time that are uh, in your lungs, that are in the air, there's a seasonal cycle that we understand because dry air can support aerosol particles, whereas uh, humid air does not. Uh, so there, there's some degree of understanding of the seasonal cycle in, in the northern and southern mid-latitude uh, countries on the globe. So, I, But I've, I've been able to understand it all without having to say some virologist discovered a new sequence and is, giving it, is calling it a new uh, virus and is claiming that it's the next thing and that uh, is claiming to have discovered this and so on. I've, I've just been uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. because you don't need it. Well, well you know, they can synthesize add- that virus in the lab. They can completely oh. synthesize it. I, yeah. I wonder how much it was that they were following. I mean, they were doing this research, you know, in Wuhan, and they were, um, maybe I should close my, should I close that? Is it too noisy? <laughs> it, 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 no worries if you want to. It's okay. It, it, it's not too It's not too bad for you, right? Yeah, okay, okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> Um, no worries. Go ahead. Wuhan, the lab in Wuhan, you know, I really think it, it did come out of that lab and whether intentional or not, I don't know. But I think that they were doing research there and they understood. I imagine they understood about this furin, you know, cleavage site, which is the critical thing in, in, in the SARS-CoV-2 that's different from SARS-CoV. That furin cleavage site is very important because it cuts the protein in half, the, the spike protein, to make S1 and S2. And S1 cuts loose and goes and binds H2 receptors and disables them. That is a very, very serious thing. And it's possible no virus in nature would have thought to do that. But it, but they, you know, can figure out, oh, yeah, let's do this. This will be cool and see what happens. I mean, I don't know. These guys, you don't know what all they know or what all they were doing, but they may have constructed this thing in the lab. So, of course, they know its sequence because they basically, you know, in some sense created it. I mean, that's possible, I think. Yeah, I, I just keep coming back to the same response, though. My 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 own personal knee-jerk response is, but you don't need a special, particularly virulent pathogen because there's no evidence for it uh, in the all-cause mortality. Uh, that's that's what I keep coming back to. Is that mm-hmm. I, I I you know Canada has no anomaly in all-cause mortality by cycle year or by calendar year. Well, by calendar year because well that's a, a little comp, but. But there's no there's no difference in integrated all cause mortality throughout Canada, and um, so. But that's not true in the United States, right? No, the United States. But the United States is unique in that there were so many deaths. However, you have to know that in the United States, not all states are the same. They're very different. That very first uh, peak in all cause mortality that occurred right after the pandemic was announced. occurred only in states where they were shipping uh, sick people from intensive care units into mm. care homes and locking them in. Right. And they, and and they, them. <laughs> they accelerated the deaths of those people. Right. And then what we find, uh, so all the jurisdictions that did that, including Quebec and Ontario and Canada, have this peak 
that's unrelated to a virus. It's just if, if you do this, whenever you do this, you're going to accelerate the deaths of those people. And what we see in Canada is following that peak, the deaths in that age group, the, the, the most elderly, is actually below the historic trend. So hmm. it's a demonstration that they accelerated their deaths and then those fragile people were not there to die a little later right. on. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know? I've and wondered that, about that with respect yeah. to um, the fact that the people who are dying are old and feeble. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're people who are going to die anyway shortly. And so it's not such a horrible thing. I mean, you know, it's always bad when somebody dies. But I think compared to something that was killing children would have been so much worse. And the right. kids are really resistant. I'm really glad that the children hardly even notice this disease. That is so great. And that's what makes me very angry about all this push to get the, 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 the vaccines into the kids' arms because the vaccines are very toxic and the, and the children don't need, don't need them for any reason. Yeah, but that's, that's generally true of influenza and most viral respiratory diseases. Uh, young people are not affected and young adults are not affected. Uh, the only time in, in epidemiological history when uh, young people were dramatically affected was uh, 1918. Uh, the so-called Spanish flu, which several really good research papers have shown uh, people were dying of bacterial lung infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I have argued is that this, this uh, that what happened recently in the United States, which I can demonstrate is from bacterial lung infection, the mechanisms, is recreating the conditions that, that were present in 1918 before antibiotics were uh, developed, where you had young men, young adults, children, everyone incredibly stressed out by the living conditions in that time, just after the war, uh, readapting to this harsh industrial society and so on. Uh, those were the conditions that created this epidemic in uh, bacterial lung infections in 1980. And the clock mask. I think that's really important. The clock you, yes, mask you, addition is a huge part of that. Sure. I, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't know. I haven't Studied the only reason I say that is based on the peer-reviewed science. The the, ran, the only random controlled trial done on cloth masks found that it increases your risk of infection. And I found it really interesting that most people were using cloth masks at that time. And what did they stress in the beginning of this? The CDC even had its own pages saying, you should be using cloth masks. And now what are they saying? Oh, that's the only one that doesn't work. I, I just find that to be, a, you know, at the very least, we know that increased the problem. Please continue. Yeah, I... I, I... I, I won't I won't I won't uh, speak out on that in terms of the numbers and whether it's a big enough effect and so on until I've actually researched it more. But uh, it, there's a real potential there that that was important as well. But, yeah, I, I just think that uh, in the United States, those same conditions of that horrid uh, situation, 1918, were recreated. Uh, and this is before glyphosate. So I, I, I think we have to remember that the impact of in really bad living conditions, like where, when you have poverty, stress and social isolation are, are tremendous, are probably the, the leading factors in terms of determinants of, of health and of whether longevity and so on. But, but you, your work, Stephanie, has shown the incredible importance in an otherwise stable democratic modern society of a poison like glyphosate, right? I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy smokes! The the research is just unbelievable. You, you, uh, you, you have a whole, you have a body of work with uh, Samso that started yes. in 2013, and you started showing these incredibly strong correlations between the amount of glyphosate that was put out in the by the industry on on the crops 
and the prevalence of these diseases. And boy, talk about a list of diseases that you've identified as being directly related, highly correlated to glyphosate use. We've got, I'm, I'm just going to read it off because it's too important. Thyroid cancer, liver cancer, bladder cancer, pancreatic cancer, kidney cancer, uh, myeloid leukemia, lipoprotein metabolism uh, anomalies, hypertension, stroke, obesity, diabetes, end-stage renal disease, renal failure, autism, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, a multiple sclerosis, intestinal infection causing death, and inflammatory bowel. The, the, you, you've got 20 chronic diseases that are highly correlated to glyphosate use. That's and right. That, and and, and that, of course, what they say is correlation doesn't mean causation. That's their answer, which I find really puzzling because, you know, correlation is where you start, right? You see that when people smoke, they get lung cancer and eventually you try to figure out how that happens. But I think um, for me, that was just so amazing. How could, and people also say, how could one chemical cause so many diseases? And that does seem surprising. So they just think, well, you know, sure, it's just going up. It, it just happens to be going up at the same time all these diseases are. But if you take away glyphosate and say it's not glyphosate, then you have to say, what is it for every one of those diseases? Something else that's correlated. And that's hard to find. You know, it really is hard to find something else. And so well, I, um, I want to insist, though, Stephanie, the correlations are not just associations. They're not just correlations in the usual sense. These are strong mathematical correlations. Uh, we're, yes. we're talking about Pearson coefficients that are through the roof, 0 0.988, 0 0.960, 0 0.981, and so on, right? These They're are like, incredible. You never see numbers yeah. like that. Huh? You never see numbers like no, that. No, you never see numbers like that. These are the kinds of graphs that you're getting for yes, the relationship <laughs> between glyphosate and a particular disease. This one is a uh, number of children with autism. Okay. Yeah, the autism correlation is so striking. Yes, but they're all like that. I've got a whole bunch of graphs like that. They're 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 all they all have these incredible coefficients, and they're ha they're happening. I I even one of your critics in the peer reviewed literature said, "Oh, you know that you can't you shouldn't believe this. It's just happening by accident. Because if it were true, for example, the cancers wouldn't happen so quickly in in time correlation with the glyphosate." Well, that's a pretty uh, weak uh, way of dismissing all of your work, right? But it is because glyphosate accumulates. So I think it's basically you get more and more over time. It's it goes into your tissues and it stays there for a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in fact, you know, Alzheimer's correlation. It, and I, with autism, we did a correlation over the previous four years of the child's life. That shot, uh, that one you showed, it's glyphosate usage over the previous four years integrated that perfectly right. matches autism. So you're getting the glyphosate exposure your whole life. Uh, and what you're looking at is what's happening now, but you've got plenty of time to develop cancer over the course of since glyphosate's been around since 75. Well, the other thing too. Sorry. If I could have one point, no, one quick point I think is really interesting is this also ties back to the vaccine discussion, which we'll get to after we, after this is it's interesting to me that this is a way that they sidestep something that anybody honest can see that they pretend that it was generally accepted as safe, whatever the terminology is but they fail to account for the fact that it builds up in your body. And they know yes. that the science shows that. So if you continue to eat food with glyphosate, wear clothes with it in the cotton, breathe it in the air over a period of time, you're way over that. And that's what they found in the samples they took from urine and so on. Same things happening with vaccines before COVID and today. So I guess a quick question is, is, is this just blatant dishonesty by the scientific community to pretend that that makes sense or do they not realize yes. that's 
Yeah, well, there you go. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm amazed at what well, they will say. And they'll say these things that I consider to be outrageous. They say, well, it doesn't really matter that it's correlated. I mean, come on. It is an incredibly strong correlation. You can't just ignore that. But but it seems like the general public is like, oh, good. Thank, thank goodness these guys aren't worried. Therefore, I'm not worried, right? They just seem to believe it when they say well, these things. But you've got you've got changing glyphosate use of an, an order of magnitude or more over the time period, the disease following it exactly and perfectly in sync with it. That's what we're that's what we mean by correlation. This cannot be an accident. This is this is the hardest epi, epidemiology that you can have. You don't it doesn't get better than this. And not only that, but a lot of these diseases didn't even virtually didn't exist before they started using glyphosate. They were unheard of. Mm -hmm. uh, so and now they're becoming major causes of death in the UK. I understand that uh, dementia type diseases has has taken the number one or number two spot in terms of leading cause of death. Wow. That's so really sad. The, the, these are becoming the major the major killers. Uh, and they didn't they they didn't exist before. Uh, this is it, it, it's irresponsible for them to be criticizing you in this way. And there's a whole industry of scientists who are criticizing you. I don't know if you've noticed it. Oh, I certainly have. <laughs> Holy smoke. I'm getting amused by it at this point. I think it's going to be fun because I think eventually we're going to prove ourselves right. And they're going to really be in the doghouse. I think you already have. Guys. I think you both already have in, in spades, but I think just choosing to ignore what you're showing. I think that's the main point of it. Mm -hmm. since, since I pulled this up really quickly, I think that's an interesting crossover. We're talking about Alzheimer's in the UK, which obviously aluminum is a very clear is indicator in that regard. Somebody I used to work with from stopsprayingus.com used to take daily measures in San Francisco and aluminum and barium would be through the roof in the rainwater all the time, way mm -hmm. higher than it's supposed to be. So any thoughts on the potential crossover as this, this one study at the very least found connections between how that affects the brain, the, the, the synergy between glyphosate and aluminum, and even maybe touches on whether you think there's an intentional aspect to this. I don't know, intentional, but I do think uh, I wrote I'm, I wrote a paper on that. And I don't know if that's referring to that paper, but um, together with colleagues, uh, Nancy Swanson was on that uh, author list as well. Um, really, uh, it was a theoretical analysis for the most part, although we had seen uh, we had evidence for it, of course, that we talked about in the paper with references. Uh, basically, it has shown that glyphosate binds to aluminum. In fact, two or three glyphosate models will wrap uh, molecules will wrap themselves ar around an aluminum atom hiding its plus three charge. So basically it becomes a neutral uh, molecule. And so a neutral molecule is much easier to get across a leaky barrier. And glyphosate sets up a leaky barrier. It, it, it's been shown in studies that glyphosate creates a leaky gut barrier. So the aluminum glyphosate combo can get past the gut barrier, travel into the blood and it lands, it goes to the, it goes to the kidneys as well probably, but goes to the brain. And uh, in the brain, you have a more acidic environment. And it's when, when you get the pH goes down with the acid that the glyphosate lets go of the aluminum. So I think the two of them uh, escorted each other to the brain and then separated. And then both of them became toxic to the brain um, as a consequence of that. And of course, there's also aluminum in vaccines. Now, the vaccines that contain aluminum normally do not contain glyphosate. So at least it's separate vaccines that are giving you the aluminum and the glyphosate. But you often get two vaccines at the same time, these kids are coming up, you know, li lining up for multiple vaccines in one visit, and they could get one vaccine containing aluminum, another one containing glyphosate at the same time, and those two could buddy up and do some nasty, nasty damage to the brain. I suspect. Mm. Yeah, uh, 
an understanding of these mechanisms is, is really vital to even just making hypotheses about how combinations will be toxic and so on, right? And, and right, synergistic toxicity is a big deal. And, you know, we've got all these chemicals that we're exposed to, and we know that many of them are synergistically toxic. I think mercury and glyphosate are also synergistically toxic. Mm-hmm. And so, and mercury, of course, has also been linked to autism. And so I think glyphosate is making other things much more toxic than they would otherwise be. Anything that's uh, fat soluble as well, because glyphosate disrupts the enzymes that detoxify uh, many of the other toxic chemicals that are fat soluble. So now you end up with those becoming more toxic because of the glyphosate, the simultaneous presence of glyphosate. But the combos are just, I mean, unbelievable. How can you study all these different combinations of things we're exposed to today? We have so many synthetic chemicals in our environment it's just amazing that we even survive as well as we do <laughs> stephanie i want to i want to ask you uh, a question about white blood cells uh, the immune system is can, have you because uh, you, you're thinking about this you're juggling these ideas and the mechanisms all the time you're you know you're you're you're, you're that person so i want to ask you is it possible that the vaccines the m the mrna vaccines can harm the the cells in the bone marrow that create the white blood cells i absolutely think so i absolutely how would that, think so. How would that work how, i mean how? because it goes into the bone marrow that so they've traced it you know people have done studies where they've traced where does the message rna go that's a very important question to answer um the industry is sort of saying well it just stays in the arm muscle and doesn't really go anywhere but they know that's not true because in these tracer studies they found that it the immune cells um so that the muscle cell initially takes up the these, these nanoparticles that are, there's lots of these nanoparticles in, in the injection. Muscle cells take them up and start making spike protein. They expose it on their surface. And then that attracts the immune cells, cells to come into the muscle and to deal with this problem. There's like this strange new toxic protein that's appearing out of nowhere. And the immune cells also take up the nanoparticles when they arrive. So then they start making this pr- protein. That's very, very unusual because the immune cells don't have the H2 receptors. They would not be taking up the virus. So it's really quite unusual right there for an immune cell to be taking up uh, and making the spike protein in response to the to the um, vaccine. And then the immune cells, they, they rush into the lymph system to try to get uh, get this information to the B cells and the T cells, because they're kind of thinking, I think the only thing we can do here is get antibodies to this stuff so we can try to block it from getting into cells. So they rush into the immune system, they go to the, um, they, care, they go from there into uh, the spleen, the liver, the uh, the, oh, the, but wait! Uh, I want I want to slow, I want to slow you down a bit. And want, the bone marrow. <laughs> I want. Okay, I understand. They rush into uh, uh, the, the the factory that makes these cells, and what happens there? I want to I want to open that up a bit. Well, so the the immune cells will go into the bone marrow, carrying this messenger RNA and continuing to make spike spike protein, and then releasing it. I think in the form of exosomes. So I've talked about this in the past. I think. Um, my analysis, and there's papers that support that, is that these, what happens is these infected immune cells, immune cells that are infected with the, with the mRNA nanoparticles are, are furiously making spike protein at a high rate and they can't stop themselves because the, the, the nanoparticles are specially designed with many alterations. They're very different from messenger RNA that the virus makes. And the difference is that they, they support really fast production of the spike. They, they are very sturdy against getting broken down. And then they also have modifications in the actual sequence, you know, of the, um, of the RNA that it's enriched in in guanine, for example. And that has all kinds of implications that are quite interesting, but basically 
they're making lots of spike protein that's getting released in exosomes. Those exosomes are then going to be toxic to the cell, other cells that are in the bone, bone marrow. They're going to so have it, a toxic effect and they're going to cause inflammation. So I and that's going to damage them. In the, the bone marrow has stem cells that would make the white blood cells that you need, the various types. Are those stem cells being attacked and will they be damaged? And will that damage last a long time? Excellent questions. And I think it's still theoretical, but I think there's support for it. Definitely. And, and so there's, it's been shown that the spike protein can get into the nucleus. And the same article showed that in the nucleus, the spike protein suppresses um, two important proteins that are uh, able to repair DNA when it's damaged. So it interferes with DNA repair. That also interferes with the production of antibodies. Actually, the, the refinement of the shape of the antibody depends on these D DNA repair proteins. So it both impedes the ability to make uh, suitable antibodies to something, to anything, but also injures, uh, you know, DNA damage that doesn't get repaired is going to injure that cell to the point where it's, you know, it could easily simply die, for example. So there is a chance that with some people, uh, the vaccines are harming the, the immune system at its core. And that I think so. harm could last some time for that person. And so they'll be vulnerable to all diseases for some time as a result of this. Right, absolutely. And in fact, I'm doing research right now and what we're finding uh, together with Greg Nye. Dr. Greg Nye and I published a paper in May, a long paper about the message RNA vaccines. And we've been studying them pretty much ever since last December. I've been on <laughs> like a bulldog onto these vaccines, <laughs> reading all about them. And um, we're doing a new paper now. And um, and one thing we're finding is this interference with type 1 interferon. That's actually really, really important. It looks like the vaccines are disrupting type 1 interferon, which is a, a that particular pathway, which is very, very important as initial response uh, when, a, when a cell gets infected with something. That's what has to trigger right away to get the immune system involved and get, get the response going. And, uh, and it looks like these vaccines are suppressing that. And so that's, I think, why we're seeing huge uh, numbers of cases in the various database of latent viruses coming alive again. And this is like uh, Bell's palsy, you know, this facial palsy, yeah. uh, huge numbers of cases of that. As I looked at the database, uh, the various database, and over the 31-year history of the database, um, for all the other vaccines, there's only 4% of the cases of Bell's palsy are associated with those. 96% of the cases that are listed are associated with the COVID-19 vaccines for wow. just this one year. It's a mm -hmm. huge signal. And the same thing with shingles. There's lots of shingles. And so th both of those are the re reawakening of latent viruses. And so there's also cancer. I think that is going to be a cancer risk as well because a type 1 interferon is involved in um, protecting from cancer. So I think we're yeah. going to have accelerated cancer uh, you know, increased uh, cancer. Dr. Bhakti has uh, said exactly what I just heard you say. He foresees that there's a great potential for all these uh, diseases, including cancer, to have upsurges as a result of this global vaccination campaign. Yeah, uh, totally. Well, the question to both of you, actually, since there's a couple discussions around this floating around, Dr. Ryan Cole has spoken out about his findings in regard to the the just disappearing of the killer T cells, which allows all these things to flourish. On top of the fact that Swiss Policy Research put out a study pointing to the fact that 50 percent of vaccinees showed a dysregulation in their immune system. So are these things all combining to create that? Or are they different parts of that? Or maybe you guys can elaborate for us on what that adds up to. 
So these are papers I've been reading, and I remember the one with the CD8 plus T cells showing those are the uh, cytotoxic T cells. Those were being disrupted uh, in the uh, vaccine vaccinees compared to people who had caught the disease. Uh, and as well, the type 1 interferon was talked about in that paper as well. There's quite a bit of evidence of this happening. There's a really cool paper by some people from India um, where they uh, actually grew cells in human cells in culture, and they gave them a, a DNA vector um, exposure that caused them to make spike protein. So it's a DNA rather than RNA, but it's the same concept. They made the, these cells make spike protein. And they observed that they released that spike protein in the form of exosomes. These exosomes are really important. These are little lipid particles. I think when the immune cell is overwhelmed with spike, the only thing it can do is just package it up into these exosomes and ship it out. And those exosomes go out into circulation. They travel in particular very well along the nerve fibers. This is very, very important because all those cells in the spleen that are making lots of spike protein and shipping it out in exosomes, I think those exosomes are gathering along the nerve fibers and traveling up the uh, vagus nerve up to the brainstem nuclei and from there on to the other nerves in the vein, the, in, in the brain, the, the uh, facial nerve and the um, olfactory nerve. It's actually a really good signal. I found this really fascinating. I've been rummaging around bears quite a well, bit that, lately. That, that, that ties in exactly with Bell's palsy, which is the death of a particular facial nerve, isn't it? Exactly. It's yeah. really interesting. And there's like tinnitus, a huge response of tinnitus following the vaccine. That's the auditory nerve. The mm-hmm. olfactory nerve is really striking because, you know, the virus, we know this virus has the effect of losing the sense of smell. We, we've seen that. That's one of the, sometimes the only symptom that someone has. But the vaccine, you know, it's in the muscle. So how's it going to make you lose a sense of smell? How's it going to get, you know, you got to really think about that, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a huge signal. That's another one. 90, I think it's 96, 97 even percent of the cases of, um, and there's lots of them, of a loss of a sense of smell. Are, in fact, I have the numbers here, I think. Um, yeah, 4,266 cases as of mid-December associated with loss of sense of smell uh, with the link with the COVID vaccines. That's Mm. really crucial because that means that these, I think it means the exosomes are traveling up the vagus nerve over to the um, olfactory nerve and messing up the sense of smell. And that gets called COVID-19 because of the association with the Right, that's right. Absolutely. Once they get a loss of sense of smell, they go, oh, they've got COVID. I bet you're right. They probably probably many of them that got counted as COVID (laughs) cases, a breakthrough (laughs) infection, right? (laughs) I I, want to bring something else into the conversation. Um, There is uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics. I'm I'm a member of that group. And there's a bunch of really uh, interesting scientists and, and doctors there. And they have sponsored a study by a German pathologist. Uh, and, um, he has done detail. He's looked at the slides of tissues, uh, doing the pathology of people whose family, their family believe that they died from the vaccine. And what he finds systematically is that, uh, the, the key organs like the heart and the lungs, especially Mm -hmm. and other organs were, were, uh, incredibly attacked by the immune system, an autoimmune attack. Absolutely. And, and he sees these white blood cells all over the place, killing cells in those in those organs. And uh, he, he concludes that these uh, poor individuals, they died from this. So could you could you put us put us through uh, the mechanistically um, how you go from injection in the arm to dying in this way? Is that is that is that a fair well, question to ask? That is a fair question. It's certainly one that I've been very interested in myself. When I see these sort of, you know, when I first started seeing these absolutely bizarre reactions, like this shakes, you know, it's just like 
constant, it, it's kind of like a seizure or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that has to be nerves, you know? So I really, early on, I thought it's got to be nerves. I think it's traveling along the nerves. And that's how I got myself to the exosomes because the exosomes travel along the nerves very, very well. And it's been shown in Parkinson's disease that, that it begins, Parkinson's be, begins often in the gut with some kind of foreign uh, pathogen for, uh, protein that's uh, a prion-like protein. And then the immune cells pick up that prion-like protein in the gut and carry it to the spleen. And then they go to these germinal centers in the spleen where they're producing the antibodies. But that's also where they're releasing the exosomes that contain this toxic protein, along with something called microRNA. And there's certain specific microRNAs that show up. And there have been studies that have been shown which microRNAs show up in the exosomes that are produced either for COVID-19 or for even for the mRNA vaccines or something equivalent for the spike protein being produced by human cells. They produce exosomes that contain microRNAs. And these micro, there's, there's thousands of these microRNAs. They're quite interesting. I've been learning all about microRNAs lately, mm-hmm. too. It's fun how it kind of opens up this huge space in biology for you. For someone who loves a puzzle, I'm quite happy to be reading all this literature and figuring all this stuff out. Yes. But I found three in particular, three microRNAs that have been linked to, specifically to the spike protein. And one of them is MIR-155. And you can look that up, but that one is very clearly uh, a problem in heart disease. It, it, it causes, if, if the heart is exposed to MIR-155, it causes a reaction, an inflammatory response, which is exactly what myocarditis is. So I think what's happening is quite simple with the heart problems, which we know myocarditis in these athletes, you know, di- are dying on the basketball court type of thing. Um, it's the, the immune cells, I'm thinking this, it's the immune cells in the spleen, overproducing spike protein, shipping it out in exosomes, traveling up the vagus nerve, going straight to the heart along the vagus nerve and delivering this microRNA-155 along with the spike protein, which itself induces an inflammatory response. So the heart just goes on fire with inflammation with that kind of a load, those exosomes being poured in from the vagus nerve. That's what I think is going on. Wow. Okay. That's, that's powerful. I, I think I, that in and of itself, go ahead, Denny. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I was imagining another mechanism where it was mainly happening through, through the blood, through the vascular system. That's another possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think it may be both. And in fact, I I've heard about, you know, aspirating, not aspirating, ending up uh, injecting mm. into the blood that is going to really accelerate the rate at which mm-hmm. it would land at the heart. Uh, the mm-hmm. actual MRNA molecules are arriving. Right. Uh, mRNA uh, nanoparticles. These athletes have a particularly well-developed cardiovascular system. I mean, they've been, this is their, this is what they're about and they're pushing it to the limit on the field. Yes. I think it's that stressed heart in a situation where there's all that inflammation just can't take the stress. And we see it more predominantly today in, in tennis, soccer, the people that are yeah. running at nonstop. That was a great point somebody brought up the other day on Twitter. And I said, that's an excellent comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very disturbing. Right. But I, I think the, the, the route through the blood is maybe more natural. Most, most physicians think of it in, in that way. Yes. Uh, whereas the route that you're describing, I, I haven't heard it that much. Uh, no, it's actually sort of my own special theory. So okay. we wrote about that. Uh, some of that we wrote about it in that in that paper that Greg and I wrote. And we're, as I say, we're working on a second paper and we're talking mm-hmm. about it there as well. I increasingly think that those exosomes are a major player in the whole thing okay. because of the fact what what really picked, you know, picked me up on it was the uh, all these um, adverse reactions in the various database that are linked to all these different nerves. 
Yes. You know, there's also um, headaches, you know, headaches and migraine headaches, huge, huge counts, tens of thousands, I believe, right. of those kinds of things. And so, that's the so, uh, trigeminal nerve. So that's another that's nerve, how, like all these nerves in the in the facial right. region on fire, causing these symptoms. That seems right. so, so clear to me. So that has to be, I think it has to be exosomes. Okay, uh, why, why does it these, have to be exosomes? It, well, they travel nicely along the nerve fibers. Right. They, they are, in fact, lipid, you know, they're lipid uh, drops. Yeah. And, and it's been shown that they actually travel up the vagus nerve. It's been shown experimentally that that's what they do. That's been connected to Parkinson's. They found so that if you sever so, the vagus nerve, mm-hmm. people who have had their vagus nerve severed, I think, for various problems of pain or something. And those people are, are protected against Parkinson's disease. So they mm-hmm. really understand that that something is traveling up the vagus nerve. Now, I guess it could be the immune cells themselves. I, I wouldn't rule that out. Those could also be traveling up the vagus nerve. But I don't know to what extent immune cells tend to travel along nerve fibers. I know exosomes do. So I think that makes a lot of sense. They travel very well along, along nerve fibers. Right, but they, the immune cells travel very well in the vascular system. In, right, in, right, that's right. Blood. So, and, and, the, and the blood vessels are made porous by the lipids and so on. So that, that's been the, the main route that people have imagined. But you're making the point that the way to resolve these two mechanisms is to think in terms of all the nerve reactions, the nerve-specific conditions that are induced, right, by the vaccine. That's, that's what that's, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's yeah. why, because I see all that. And there's also things like paralysis that's coming in, which is going to be the nerves in the backbone, because I suspect mm-hmm. that, that that nerve is also being affected by these, um, by mm-hmm. these injections. I, I picture all these exosomes and the exosomes are going to go into the blood as well, by the way. And also, I think they're going to be released out of the lungs, probably released through the skin. And this is how I think it's causing people who hang out near people who've recently been vaccinated are actually seeing symptoms. Many women are reporting odd menstrual cycle as a consequence of hanging out with vaccinated people. One even told me she got shingles at the same time as the vaccinated person got shingles. The one who was not vaccinated but was hanging out with them also got shingles, which was kind of okay, amazing. Okay, so you're 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 proposing that the that a vaccinated person could be exhaling uh, these exosomes, and yes. that someone else would inhale them and get uh, the symptoms that way. Developed. Yes, and the exosomes can even contain the messenger RNA itself. Wow. They actually showed that with the spike protein that that the cell could release an exosome. I was really amazed to see that in one of the articles I read. An entire spike uh, message RNA encapsulated in the exosome. So well, that's going to actually I, provide the opportunity to make spike protein in the cells of the person who breathes in that exosome. That's incredible. I'm going to ask a radical question and maybe some people will say, oh God, you know, roll their eyes or whatever. But what about the idea that there are no viruses, that all of respiratory diseases, so-called viral respiratory diseases on the planet are just through exosomes. We're just communicating uh, mutations uh, through exosomes to each other. And and the transmission is high during the winter because nanoparticles are supported in the air, in the dry air, and that way you can breathe them in. What do you think of this crazy idea? You've been talking to Tom Cowan, right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I've been okay. well, aware he has that I've seen I've seen interviews and things, but yeah. yeah no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that I believe it or that um, I think it's a good idea, but I want to put it out there. Well, it's an interesting I, discussion for sure that we yeah. should it be is having. For sure. And yeah. I, uh, my personal belief is that viruses are real, but you know, it's a question of what they are exactly and where did they come from? And, and like mm-hmm. you say, they have a lot of, a lot in common with exosomes. 
-hmm. And so it seems like there's kind of a gradation. And you know, I mean, the only real difference between an exosome and a virus is that the virus often contains the facility that allows it to, to clone itself. So the exosome is normally thought of as something that can't clone itself, you know, in the sense that the virus has enzymes that allow it to copy its RNA so it can make more viruses, whereas the exosome supposedly does not have that. So, you know, anytime you have an exosome that also has in it the code for something that can copy RNA along with RNA in there, that's basically a virus. So it's, it's, it, there is kind of a an interesting continuum, you know, mm -hmm. a scale along which you finally end up with a virus. And then you can say, well, did that virus actually emerge from the human cells? Because I think possibly that viruses are sort of exosomes on steroids, but mm -hmm. that they came out of these human cells that were stressed as they're trying to figure out how to deal with the stress. And or, to, or, no, but Stephanie, out, they came out of animal cells because there have been breathing animals on the planet for a long time. And so... Well, any kind of, you know, biological organism, actually. Right. Uh, could could be doing this, but but um, and exactly which one delivered where because it can spread once it can spread from one organism to another, right. you know. And then so the issue you, of being you, able you to just infect. made a very important point, which is this distinction between exosomes and viruses. At least in principle, you said okay, there's a gray area. You you might have you might have this this distinction being marred somewhat depending on the circumstances. But in generally speaking, only a virus will replicate itself in the infected person's body and do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And so it's a virus that will give you an infection in the classical sense where you actually come down right. with the symptoms, they get worse, and you go through a cycle. And that is exactly the set of symptoms that we know transmits. If, you, if someone in the house has it, someone else is going to get it next, and then someone else, and then someone else, and you go through the same sequence of symptoms. So we can't deny all of that. That's just, that's so well established. Mm -hmm. And you're pointing out that, well, that can only be from a particle that replicates in the body. Right? You would think so. I mean, that's not entirely true because this, uh, uh, prion proteins are kind of, you know, this is a protein-based infection. And they, prions can kind of replicate. And it's interesting how they do it because it's kind of like a crystal. So, uh, in prion, you know about prion proteins and mad cow disease and all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And Kutzfeldt-Jakob, which is the human prion disease, a miserable disease. You typically die in a few years from complete paralysis and that sort of thing. Very nasty disease. Um, the spike protein is a prion-like protein. That's been shown in various studies, um, which means it has a tendency to misfold uh, in the same way that prion proteins do. And there's several different proteins in our body that are prion-like, and they're all connected. Many of them are connected to neurological diseases. But they wouldn't be replicated. They wouldn't. They, don't they replicate in the sense that they can cause other proteins to join the club. So they don't mm. actually copy themselves. But you already have proteins in your cell that also could become prion proteins. And it's like a crystal seed. I think of it oh, as like a crystal seed. Oh, I see what you seed. mean. Oh, that's what you mean. It's like it's a, a, recruit, seeding, a seeding reaction. Other, other proteins to become prion proteins. It feels like well. a very semantical difference, right? I mean, we're basically ends up in the same result. You know, here, here's a question. Maybe you guys can, can answer for me. Dr. Warren, Luigi Warren, I believe was the discoverer of mRNA. He spoke out about this on Twitter a while back that he, he argued that the spike protein can absolutely shed through, you know, how it sweat glands, different studies have found. He argues nonetheless that it's such a small amount that he doesn't think it could do anything. But the Salk Institute found in their research that it is is cytotoxic, that it can cause disease in and of itself. So if we have something that is shedding or in your case, what you're discussing 
being through an exosome being spread through the breath, couldn't that then create, if it's causing disease, it could then cause symptoms, which could then spread again. So if that is happening as the study, the research is finding, what is that? I mean, it wouldn't be COVID-19, but it is the spike protein. So don't you find yourself in the same position where it's like, well, it's not a virus, but it's doing the same thing, right? So yeah, I don't know, you guys give me your thoughts on that. The, the vaccine has a lot of the same symptoms as the virus. Exactly. Which is really interesting because it's only the spike protein. It doesn't have the rest of the virus. The virus has a lot of other stuff besides the spike protein, and it has the ability to reproduce. So it feels like it's very stripped down. It's kind of amazing to me that that spike protein by itself uh, can do so much damage. But it's clear that it's very toxic. And many papers have come out and shown that spike protein gets into the brain, that it causes brain inflammation, that it gets into the nucleus, it, it damages the DNA. I mean, all these things are being seen in studies. So we have no doubt that the spike protein is toxic. And that's why I feel, of course, you don't want to inject a toxic protein into your body, especially the, I mean, injecting the ability to make it, which is even worse because you that, don't, that's, have, but that's, don't have that's, a good clue of how much is being made. Yeah. I mean, almost everything is toxic and um, your body is always repairing. And so it's a question of kinetics and amounts, really. And so we have to be careful not, not to fall into the trap that, you know, since we've demonstrated toxicity, therefore we have to assume that there are going to be observable symptoms in people, you know? And right. I, um, it's a matter of how much. They, they say glyphosate's harmless if it's in small amounts, right? You're yes, 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 yes. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's generally true. But I think, I think the, the distinction that Stephanie was making is really key, and it's really helping me to visualize this now, is that a, a virus will replicate and is designed to replicate itself, whereas uh, these these vesicles will not, generally speaking, and they're not right. designed to 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 produce that result. So you you might get some small effect, momentary, but it's it's not a pathogen that will continue to propagate in society and so on, right? Well, in theory, although I think that's not entirely true with these messenger RNA vaccines, because, uh, you know, and again, theoretically, there's enough studies that have been done to show that it is a distinct possibility that the messenger RNA can get converted into DNA um, by enzymes that exist in human cells. And particularly they exist, for example, in immune cells and cancer cells in sperm in, in the testes. These cells have the capability of converting messenger RNA into DNA. And in fact, it's quite, I found an amazing paper talking about sperm. This paper was from some time ago, long before COVID. They found that the sperm could take up foreign messenger RNA, which is what these vaccines are, turn it into DNA and produce little um, plasmids containing that DNA. And then at the time of fertilization, all the sperm, not just the one that fertilizes, are releasing these plasmids. And then the uh, fertilized egg takes them up and incorporates them. And then those plasmids become something really permanent in that um, fertilized, in that in the, in the uh, fetus that develops out of that fertilized egg. So that child is actually born, still carrying um, plasmids take, uh, taken from the sperm that contain the messenger RNA as DNA, circular DNA contained inside those plasmids that can keep on making more DNA and therefore more protein for the rest of that child's life. And even those can be passed on to its uh, offspring. So that is really permanent. And that can happen theoretically mm -hmm. with these vaccines. And in fact, you know, there was a study that showed that the spike protein was still being, uh, was still around 15 months later. Um, yes. after, yeah, you saw that. Yes, I saw that, yeah. 
And that might be through this DNA mechanism. I don't know. I mean, no one has said it's not, it's part of what we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That could become permanent. Wow. Wow. If I I could try to, oh, go ahead, Denny, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say there's just, there's so much to worry about. And the more, exactly, that's what worries me. I am very worried about our children. Our, our the children today are really going to be in trouble if they have to get booster shots of, of these message RNA oh. every year or every six months. It's just going to be brutal. That's kind of what I wanted to clarify. Maybe we can wrap up on this point, unless Danny has any any more excellent questions. I, I think that what you're essentially showing there is that the body is is being trained as they're even kind of talking about how to do this certain thing, but they argue it's not going to be forever that it stops doing these de- the things that we're talking about, but you're discussing this being tr- passed on generationally to other generations and it continues forward. So in a small way, possibly larger than it seems you're altering the species, right? That will change forever. So is that, I mean, obviously this is not what they would want us to think. What are the long-term consequences here that we're actually talking about? Hard to say. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know if a, if a child is exposed to this messenger RNA, as DNA um, in utero, uh, it, one thing is that that child probably will not mount any antibodies to the spike protein because mm. they'll think it's na- it's na- uh, human protein. Wow, and that will be very strange. So I don't know what that will mean, you know, long term. But um, they'll make a new vaccine tomorrow, and they'll address the new problem. That'll just keep going <laughs> forward. There's a lot more research that needs to be done. That's for sure. And I'm very very frustrated at how little they did before just, you know, determining that all of a sudden everybody has to get this vaccine, no questions asked, uh, safe and effective, safe and effective. I mean, that is just such a lie. Talk about disinformation campaign, you know? Absolutely. A completely new technology, uh, mass produced and mass delivered without without all the usual years and years of, 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 of safety studies and so on, right? And, right. and looking at also generational effects and all, right. there's just so many things that need to be examined regarding safety that we're yeah, never it's very examined. unusual. It's extremely yeah. unusual technology, very sophisticated. I mean, you have to admire them for their cleverness, but they are really um, take, making huge assumptions about the safety um, that are not uh, justified at all. And I, I have one last question that I, I'd like to, if, if we have time. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, we've been looking at, I've been looking at the VARS data as well and, and talking to researchers who are looking at the VARS data. And one thing is very clear is that in the United States, there are three main manufacturers and the toxicity per dose is much higher, a factor of four or five higher for the Janssen product. Um, can you, could you say something about that relative to Pfizer and Moderna? Is that Johnson and Johnson or Janssen? Product? I, Johnson and Johnson? Correct. I think it's they're calling it Janssen. Is that uh, is that Johnson, Johnson, Johnson. Johnson? Yeah, correct. That's yeah, the same. It's one. the same. So uh, certainly, the um, it seems like it has a problem with blood clots, right? A, a much bigger problem. Yes. With blood clots. Yes, and they kept using it, and throughout VARS, you can see when you when you plot the uh, dose specific toxicity, like on a per dose basis, they keep using it, and it's constantly a factor of four or five greater in deaths and severe adverse effects and so on than the other two. Um, yeah, what, how that's would you? Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, so I can't remember. Um, I looked at those, uh, those, you know, DNA vector vaccines at one point, and I know one of them, um, I think it's the AstraZeneca that has the human, but I'm not sure. So one of them has human and one of them has monkey adenovirus. Right. Do you know right. which one? 
No, I don't. <laughs> that that could be crucial. I don't know whether human or monkey would be more toxic, but it might be that whichever of those two it is. And I wish right. I knew that right now. I did know it at one time, but I can't remember which one um, right. it was. Uh, yeah, I, got, I just pulled this up quickly. It does say the AstraZeneca vaccine uses chimpanzee adenovirus. Okay, so it's a human adenovirus. Uh, adenovirus. Mm-hmm. So it could be. I mean, I one thing they worried about with that is that they, you would have develop antibodies to the adenovirus and then it wouldn't work anymore because you basically cleared right. it before it got a chance to make spike protein. That was right. one concern they had that it wouldn't right. be useful multiple times. Right. Um, I would have thought the monkey one would be more, um, mm. more toxic, but apparently not. So I don't know the answer to that. That would be something okay. to look into. Yeah. Okay. I thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good one. <laughs> My curiosity. But I don't have well, an answer to that. So this this was such an such an important conversation. There's so many different things came out on different perspectives, and I almost think we even just three of us should do this again. To be quite honest, but I think this, was this fun. is it was. I mean, it's really interesting to see you know the different of perspective, perspective you know perceptions on what's happening and the different levels of research. And you know, I think every it, everyone brings a different perspective to the table and it changes things just slightly. You know, and I think that's really important. I, I definitely can promise you that people will watch this interview and walk away with some profound new insight on something from one of the three of us that put something out there. So that's, I I didn't get to tell the story about the the social science of science itself and how I think Stephanie broke through in one regard. I noticed something that happened. Maybe I can tell the story very briefly, but Stephanie, your work was, was largely ignored your work on glyphosate until Mm -hmm. something happened it was criticized by an expert in one of the leading journals. Do you remember that? Uh, oh, well, that was glyphosate does not. Right? Yes, glyphosate does not substitute for glycine during protein synthesis. Exactly. Title, it was criticized yeah. by those people. And then there was an article in Nature or Science, a leading journal, that said that glyphosate was a problem, but they cited only your critics, not you. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh-huh. that's how people could find you. I mean, the scientists started. And so I went and read this guy who was highly critical of your entire body of work point by point. And I read it and I thought, wait a minute. He, when you say that someone is not as brilliant as it appears, it means you're admitting they're brilliant. <laughs> you know, that's what he was doing. He was saying, you know, she's got these mechanisms. But there's no laboratory experimental proof of those mechanisms. Right. And right. I'm saying, but you're not saying that they've been disproved either. So right. what are you going on about, you know? <laughs> and uh, I thought that was really interesting to see this fight between, I mean, someone who feels threatened by you as somewhat of an outsider coming mm-hmm. in with this rather challenging and brilliant work. And he felt he had to make this big criticism. And through that, People got to make the connection yes. to you. Well, I, I appreciate that these people are, are stirring up trouble and causing people to notice me because that, you know, I know they're only going to say bad things and that's all right with me. I don't mind because they, they, I, they notice me much more because they're fighting me than they would if they just stayed quiet, probably. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I trigger a lot of critical thinkers out there who will discern for themselves. They'll read it and then be like, well, I'm going to look into her work myself. And that's the kind yes. of person you're trying to reach right now. You exactly. Know? Exactly. And I will say this book, you know, I'm very surprised that Monsanto didn't go after me on this because mm-hmm. they they're they're interestingly quiet. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, Bayer, I think that it means they know that this is what's happening. I believe they know yes. that the, the, the glycine analog point, which is crucial to my book. 
and to my whole story about how glyphosate affects health. I think Stephanie, now, this, this, this is a landmark book. This is you. such an important book and it is so well written. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant book. It's, it's right up there uh, with Silent Spring. You know, you, you have you so really, you have really done it. it. Thank you. You have really done it with this book. It's incredible. The, the only question now is, is, are the vaccines going to cause more harm to our health in North America or is it glyphosate? Or I know or which finish. one. I never thought I would meet something worse than glyphosate, but exactly. I'm that these vaccines may well be. I think yeah. we're coming to the realization that together they're going to do something even more dangerous. Absolutely. Like that, that's kind of the, syner- the the dangerous synergy that we're seeing. I think that's a, a good place to kind of to tap to finish on, guys. And I think that what's really important here, you know, you touched on something on the way out there that I think is a really good analogy for the, everything we're seeing today, which is the idea that something's unverified doesn't mean that it's not true. And exactly. That's everything that's happening today. Oh, uh, there's it's unverified. Therefore we dismiss it. Right. And it's fake. That's a, that, that is the most unscientific thing I've seen. It ta- challenges the very idea of the scientific method. All we're really asking is to bring these conversations to a front, have them discuss them, have everybody be able to challenge them, think for themselves. And I think your work, both of you is, is really, really opening that up for a lot of people. And so thank you both for joining joining me today. And, and I think we should do this again very soon. I think we should. This was great. Thank you for having us. And it's been great. Wonderful conversation. It was great. Well, as always, everybody out there question everything, come to your own conclusions, stay vigilant.